Welcome to Prairie View again, and happy Mother's Day. Thanks for worshiping here with us. And mothers, as you leave, don't forget to grab a small token of our appreciation. Those will be by the door as you walk out when the service is complete. Now, last week we saw Paul take a confrontational tone against the Philippians' opponents, particularly a group of people known as Judaizers. Judaizers taught that in order to be truly saved, confessing Jesus as Lord wasn't enough. You had to follow the Old Testament law as well. You had to be circumcised. You had to be righteous. In other words, you had to be Jewish. But Paul rebukes the Judaizers for this false teaching, this anti-gospel, because the suggestion that we must add anything of our own to enter into a right relationship with God, well, that idea cheapens Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And Paul says, may it never be. Paul looks forward to knowing Christ fully, being resurrected like Christ, being with Christ in eternity, not because of what he's done, but because of what Christ has done on the cross, on his behalf. Paul refers to his works, his obedience, his sparkling Jewish resume as rubbish. Because Paul's salvation doesn't come from his righteousness. It comes from Christ's righteousness. Thus, Paul warns the Philippians to never forget that truth. And I pray that we would never forget that truth either. We are not saved by good ethics or sound morals or random acts of kindness or some conviction to do the right thing, whatever that might be. We are saved by the grace of God. We are saved by Christ. But today, Paul picks up where he left off. But he also adds a few other things worthy of the Philippians' consideration and worthy of ours as well. Paul talks about three very important ideas. The first is time, past, present, future. The second is a prize, a goal, or a finish line for our lives. And then the third thing is our identity. And Paul discusses where the Christian's true identity lies. Now, as we've mentioned, Paul has brought everything in this book back to Christ. Paul's joy, Paul's suffering, Paul's obedience, Paul's salvation. It all comes back to Jesus. But now he brings these three things back to Christ as well. Time, prize, identity. Now, we've seen Paul put his money where his mouth is. Paul doesn't just tell people to give their whole lives to Christ. He's actually done it himself. But the big question is, what about us? Have we given all of our lives over to Christ? So with that, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. Or if you forgot to get your mom a Mother's Day gift, take that Bible home and give it to her. So, with that, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace that are on display throughout your whole word. Um, from beginning to end, we see your grace, we see your kindness, we see your mercy, and we are so in awe of that. But, Father, we don't just see that in your word, we see it in our own lives. 
Thank you for being gracious to sinners like us. Thank you for your son who died for us, your spirit who indwells us, your word which teaches us and guides us, your church which gives us brothers and sisters, gives us a family to call home. And Father, thank you for mothers. Thank you for how you've used mothers in the past all over your word. And thank you for how you're using mothers right now for your glory and the good of this church, but not just in this church, elsewhere. Thank you again for this time we have together to worship, to praise you. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Let's begin by reading Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, talking about verses 8 through 11, fully knowing Christ, being in the presence of Christ, being like Christ. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul continues on the same theme that he focused on last week. Gaining Christ, being found in Christ's righteousness by faith, knowing Christ, becoming like Christ in every way. Becoming like Christ even in things like suffering and death and, most importantly, resurrection. Because being like Christ is what Paul wants more than anything. And his whole life bears witness to that. He wants it so much that he left everything else behind when he met Christ on that road to Damascus. However, Paul's not quite there yet. And he compares reaching this point to running a race. It's not the only time in Scripture that Paul uses athletic imagery to get his point across. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Another passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Near the end of his life, Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. One theologian writes, Athletic images conjure up a number of stimulating associations, including rigorous training or exercise, singleness of purpose, we certainly see that in this passage, delayed gratification, that's a big theme too, Maximum for streamlining performance, self-control, perseverance, endurance. Athletic endeavor also involves intense competition with lofty objectives and high stakes, 
and it requires faithful adherence to a prescribed set of rules to avoid disqualification. But in spite of all the hard work, the end result of athletics is temporary fame. But for the Christian, the crown to be won is eternal. Now, if you've ever run a race, I know some people in our church ran the mini marathon about a week ago. If you've ever run a race, one of the first questions that you'll get asked when you're done is, so, what was your time? What was your time on the race? Well, Paul focuses on time as well. He specifically says to forget what's behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. Well, what lies behind Paul? His old life, the one we talked about last week. But what lies ahead? Resurrection. Eternity with Christ. Paul refuses to go back to the past, his old way of life before Christ, because that was a bunch of rubbish. It's not that he completely forgets his old life. In fact, remembering his past sin before Christ is a constant reminder of God's grace to him. He doesn't entirely forget it. But Paul refuses to return to his old way of life. He refuses to return to life before Christ, and he challenges believers to do the same thing. We see it in passages like Galatians 4. Paul's argument essentially boils down to, you know, you're children of God now. So why would you ever want to return to being slaves of sin? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a laundry list of public sins. And then he says, you know, Corinthians... You were once guilty of the same things, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. That's not who you are anymore. We see a passage like Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, you know, your old life, the one before Christ, the one dominated by sin, that life didn't give you freedom. That life didn't give you joy. It didn't bear any fruit. That old life only brought about death. So don't go back to that old life. Strain forward to what lies ahead. Look to your future reward. Paul is running the race of faithfulness to Christ. And why would he ever want to look back? If he looked back, he'd be like those finicky, stubborn, rebellious Israelites in the wilderness who thought it would be a good idea to go back to slavery in Egypt once things got difficult. But Paul is focused on the future that God has in store for him. So he strains forward to what lies ahead. The question is, is that true of us? When you look back on your old life before you met Christ, are you horrified by your sin? Or are you just a little bit nostalgic? When you look at your past sins, do you think to yourself, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace, because I definitely didn't deserve it, and yet you've been so good to me. Or do you look back at your old life and say, you know, that sure was a lot of fun. I kind of wish I could go back to it, maybe just for a day or so. That's it. Well, if you think back on that past life of sin and rebellion, and you think it looks good then you haven't properly understood the glories God has in store for you in the future. The glories God has in store for you in eternity. Don't look back. Strain forward to what lies ahead.
Now let's read this passage again. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So we've talked about time. No longer looking behind, instead straining forward to what lies ahead. But why is Paul so focused on the future? Well, because that's where the true prize awaits him. Now, what exactly is this perfect, ultimate, glorious prize? Well, the prize is Christ himself. Like Paul mentioned back in chapter 1, as his life is on the line, Paul says, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says that his desire is to depart and be with Christ because that is far better than any prize that he could be given in this life. Eternity with Christ is what makes Paul wake up in the morning. Christ is who inspires him to keep running this race of faithfulness, even with Roman chains locked around his ankles. Christ is what makes Paul pick up his pen and write letters like this one, knowing that some recipients won't listen to a word he says. Christ is why Paul can sit in a jail cell in the middle of an earthquake and sing hymns. The prize of Christ motivates Paul's every word and every deed. The prize is not some benefits that Christ can give Paul. The prize is Christ himself. You can't help but think about Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For Paul, Christ is the treasure laid up for him in heaven, the prize that he strains forward to. And because that prize awaits him, Paul presses on even through suffering. He's looking to the future, not the past. He's focused on his eternal prize, not his present circumstances. But again, we have to ask, is the same true of us? Imagine if an independent party, a totally unbiased evaluator, came in and did an audit on your life. They took inventory on your life. They looked at how you spend your time, how you spend your money, your relationships, your words, your possessions. They looked at everything. What conclusions do you think they would come to? Would they say you're more focused on your eternal future in the presence of Christ or more focused on living it up right now? Would they identify Christ as the prize that you value above everything? Or would they say that, you know, your prize is actually something else? Maybe your true prize is work or family or money, or success, or comfort, or security, or reputation. Those things might not be bad, but if they become your prize ahead of Christ, then those things have become idols, false gods. So what is your true 
prize. In verse 16, Paul tells the Philippians and tells us to hold true to what we have attained. This prize of eternity with Christ is waiting for you. This prize has your name on it because this prize has been secured for you by God himself. So let that future motivate your life right now. Not your sinful temptations of the past. Not prizes that will ultimately disappoint and tarnish and rust and fade. Instead, run your race of faithfulness. Strain forward. Press on toward the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's continue in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul has talked about the future. He's talked about our prize. But now he talks about one more deeply significant thing. And that, of course, is our identity. Back in chapter 1, we mentioned that the city of Philippi was a Roman colony filled with many people who served in the Roman military. Thus, Philippi was likely a place that took great pride in its Roman heritage, and the people who lived there likely had very deep Roman patriotism. But Paul tells the Christians there that their identity has changed. Their Roman heritage is no longer the core of who they are. Being part of the family of God is now the center of their identity. Now, that doesn't mean that they've ceased to be Romans. It doesn't mean that they disown all the old identity markers they once had. Identity markers like nationality or whether or not they're a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister. They don't disown that stuff. But it does mean that every other part of their identity must come under submission to their identity in Christ. We see a great example of this in Acts chapter 16. Paul, when he's facing persecution, when he's about to get arrested, hurt, potentially even killed, he appeals to his Roman citizenship. He doesn't denounce his Roman citizenship. He doesn't say, you know what, that doesn't matter anymore because I'm part of God's family. Instead, he uses that part of his identity for the sake of the gospel. He uses that part of his identity for the sake of Christ. We don't totally disown every other part of who we are, but we do submit every inch of our identities to our core identity as a child of God. Now, that being said, being citizens of heaven, having Christ as the center of our identity, does mean that people in the world will look at us and think that we're a little bit different, think that we're a little bit strange. 
Some might even refer to us as resident aliens. The world as we know it currently is not our home. Instead, we serve as ambassadors of God's kingdom, representatives of God's kingdom, giving people the tiniest taste of what our true home, the kingdom of God, is actually like. Paraphrasing St. Augustine, we are citizens of the city of God, the city of heaven, even though right now we live in the city of man. And God's city and man's city do not always see eye to eye. But we are citizens of heaven, ambassadors of God's kingdom, representatives of the city of God and the world that we live in right now. And that will make us stick out. That will make us different. Now, you certainly can't ignore the people that Paul mentions in verses 18 and 19. Paul labels them as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, who are these people? Are they the same people that Paul called dogs last week, the Judaizers? Let's look at a few of the markers of these people. What makes their identity? Paul says their God is their belly. Instead of looking forward to a future with Christ, they're driven by their sinful appetites in the present. He says they glory in their shame. Instead of looking forward to Christ as their prize, they look at sin as their prize. And Paul says that their minds are set on earthly things. They obviously aren't citizens of heaven. Whoever these people are, people who once claimed to be Christians and then fell into sin, or the Judaizers from last week, the point is that Paul tells the Philippians and tells us not to be like them. Live as the citizens of heaven that you already are. And if our lives were audited, they would bear witness to that truth. That though we might live in the city of man, we are citizens of the city of God. So Paul's identity revolved around Christ. So much so that he left his old identity, his old prizes in the past and didn't look back. Everything in Paul's life is submitted to his citizenship in heaven. So yet again, we have to ask, just like we did with future, just like we did with our prize, we have to ask if Christ is the center of our identity. If someone was asked to name the central core of who you are, the number one thing that makes you who you are, what would they say? Would they say that your identity is based in Christ or one of the false prizes that we mentioned earlier? Things like work or family, politics, race, nationality, hobbies, sex. Those things that do not mark who we are, should not mark who we are as citizens of heaven. Instead, Christ is the core of who we are. And building on that, If there's a part of our identity that truly cannot be submitted to Christ, then we leave it behind. A person can't say, you know, I'm a member of my local KKK, but more importantly, I'm a Christian. Those two things simply can't coexist. A person can't say, you know, I'm a serial adulterer, but I'm also a Christian, more importantly. 
Some identity markers have to be done away with when we come to know Christ, when we become followers of Jesus. So what part of your identity, before you met Christ, can't be reconciled to Christ, and thus needs to be left behind entirely? Because you will find great joy, you will find great hope, great purpose, when you leave those old sinful identities behind and place all of your identity in the person and work of Christ. And when people try to convince you that the core of who you are is anything other than Christ, don't listen to them. Because in eternity, all the other identity markers that our world values, that our world labels us with, the things that we're told define us, all of those things will be meaningless. And the only thing that will matter then is whether or not you are a citizen of heaven by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. That is what truly matters in eternity. Now let's close by reading Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. The Christian life that Paul is living, and that we're called to live, it's a race. And even more specifically, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it can be exhausting. It can be tiring. There are times when you want to give in, you just want to stop. But Paul says, you know, you can stand firm through all of that. We can strain forward to what lies ahead. We can press on. We can focus on the prize. We can live as citizens of heaven because the victory has already been won by Christ on the cross. There is a prize waiting for you. Eternity with Christ himself. So brothers and sisters, as Paul said in verse 16, let us hold true to what we have attained. Let us hold true to what Christ has attained for us. This glorious prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to. That's who we are. That's the prize that awaits us. So let's press on. Let's run our race. Let's strain forward to what lies ahead looking forward to being with Christ in eternity, being like Christ in eternity, and having great, great joy in the presence of God himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the future that you've promised to us. Thank you that we have an inheritance, that we have a room in your mansion, as Jesus says in the book of John. I pray that we would look forward to our future with you and that that would motivate us far more than our past life before we met Christ, our present circumstances, whether good or bad. I pray that we would look forward to the future. 
I pray that we would treasure your son Jesus above everything else. The world tells us that we should value and prize so many things. But our greatest prize is Christ himself. Father, remind us of that. And I pray that we would find our identity in you. That we would be citizens of heaven even though we live in the city of man. I pray that we would represent your kingdom well to the world around us. Father, more than anything, we pray that we would submit every part of our lives to your son Jesus. Because as strange as it sounds, in that submission, we will find our greatest joy. We will find our greatest purpose. We will find no greater joy than when we live as the people you call us to be. So, Father, help us to do that. Help us press on. Help us strain forward. Help us run the race that you've given us, regardless of what it looks like. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you for all that you've given to us. We love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.